This is James M. Ward here, and D&D experts like myself love listening to the Save or Die podcast because I learn something new every time I tune in. First through the door, you find a small room filled with gold and jewels and a red dragon. He starts to breathe. thing I could never understand is, well, if the rules cyclopedia are just the Menser rules collected, Menser's in a box, so why? Yeah, but you don't cover the rules cyclopedia, but we cover Menser. Isn't that the same thing? Apparently not. Welcome to the Save or Die podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. If it's got a kobold, We'll talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's even better. (laughs) I had to throw that in there. (laughs) Snoochie boochies, everybody. It's Save or Die 94. Return of Attack of the Clones. Dun, dun, dun. With me is DM Liz. Hello, hello. And DM Jim. Greetings, programs. Unfortunately, DM Glenn is on hiatus for a bit, so it'll just be the three of us covering the latest retro clone that's been shot our way, Seven Voyages of Xylothan. Um, I was pronouncing it Xylothan, but it... it okay, Xylothan. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure where the emphasis goes. I'm sure Mr. Spalding will contact us afterwards. By Oak Spalding. <laughs> yes, Mr. Spalding, contact us. Tell us if we've butchered it, you know, after the show's already over. So, Dear, dear okay. Save or Die, you didn't mispronounce my game. What did I do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> it's an act of up. love. Yeah. But anyway... So we'll be looking at that. It has four books to it. Originally, the four of us each covered one book, but since Glenn wasn't able to make it, we're going to each cover our favorite monster then when it gets to random encounters. And, and these books are relatively new, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it's that old of a of a retro clone. I didn't check the uh, publication date. I know it's on a Lulu site. Which we'll have in the show notes. But the the PDFs are free. I was going to say the copyright info on the inside of the volume that I've got uh, says 2014. Oh, see, you're Uh, so good. See, she's got those things right there. I've got them, yes. Copyright 2014. And Glenn had hard copies with the box set, and he said that the production quality on those were, were pretty darn good. Well, I don't want to spoil it before we get to the review, but I like this so much from the PDFs, I ordered hard copies. I want to own this. 
I, I'm, I'm pretty tempted myself. <laughs> Have you gotten them yet? No, no, they haven't shown up yet. Okay. All right, well, we'll dive into that, but first we'll talk about what we've done in gaming this week. DM, Jim. Oh, how did I know you were going to start with me? <laughs> Dude, it's old school gaming, it's just not D&D, but we... Uh, the, my group of mutant murder hobos have been helping me playtest uh, Metamorphosis Alpha first edition adventure that I've written for Goodman that will be published in September when the hardback book comes out. And we had the game where we finally finished up the playtest. And I can't remember in the last 20 or 30 years a game that went any sweeter or a group that I was any more proud to be a part of because we had one of those rare encounters where everybody had to step up with their consummate role-playing skills and every single player and me all did it and i got to talk about it but i got to talk kind of talk around it a little bit because i can't do spoilers for something that's not published yet but if this were D &D, we had the classic doppelganger encounter and uh which uh involved me rolling up the encounter randomly and waiting for one of the players to stray off on his own away from the party, which a uh, my player Bobby obligingly did. And Bobby is like my favorite guy in the whole group because uh, he joined our group because he started dating uh, Nikki, who was already in the group. So it was like the, the, the boyfriend add-on. And we were all cool with that. But he came straight from World of Warcraft and no tabletop role-playing experience whatsoever seven months ago. And it is just a joy to watch him go through all the beginning stages of catching on fire with the hobby that we all went through when we were kids. I mean, he's about 28, so he's not he's not a teenager or anything like that, but I mean, six months in, he's power gaming, he's trying to do the thing where his character's always quantum superpositioned both in and out of danger simultaneously. <laughs> you know, he's really greedy with the loot. It's just wonderful to watch, and, and, and so he decided, he has a, was playing a mutant sparrowhawk and decided, I'll scout ahead of the group, which was all I needed. So I took him outside. I'm like, okay, let's go outside. And I'm like, I'm about to present to you the single greatest role-playing challenge a player will ever face. Your character just got paralyzed and is lying unconscious. You now get to play this monster. Your whole job is to go back in there and convince the rest of the group that it's still you, and your mission is to get one of them off to the side alone if you can. And he stepped right up to it. And then, and then one by one, he, he, he managed to get the next player who was Nikki, his girlfriend. Then I hauled Nikki outside. Ow. And one by one, I'm pulling them outside and giving them the same speech. And one by one, they're role-playing the holy bejesus out of this and going back in and getting the rest of the party. So they TPK'd themselves. Wow. <laughs> All in you know, the name I'm, of good role-playing. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did you, you know, handle the pulling aside without having the rest of the group go, wait a minute. Because usually in the groups I've been in, the only time the DM pulls someone aside to talk to them privately is because something bad is happening, and immediately the rest of the table is suspicious. They were suspicious, but I just kept it real theatrical and kept supplying plausible you know, excuses for what was going on. And it just happened. Yeah, Some of it was just the way it happened to play out. But, but the group really stepped up. Yeah, the first one wouldn't have been so bad because he's doing reconnaissance. So that would be expected to pull him aside. But it would be the, you know, as more and more of the group. Although I guess going after his girlfriend, he could pull her aside for. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> 
the, oh. it, it got down to DM Todd, and he kind of knew what was going on at that time, and he had a mutation of intuition. He goes, I'm not surprised, but he was the last guy who hadn't been taken over yet. It was like John Carpenter's The Thing, and by the time it got to him, I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, then you're not surprised when this thing turns into a murderous blob of metamorphic gel. Now, <laughs> roll for initiative, and he missed. <laughs> oh. Oh. But he knew what was coming. That, that's the important part. So yay for my players. They are awesome. Oh, cool. Excellent. Well, I guess, Liz, you want to cover what we've been doing? Mm. Well, let's see. Well, I think the last 2E game that we were in... Um, we got to get in a basic game. I know. I was, I was so hoping Bad Mike was going to run Classic this weekend, but he's not. Well, he's running, he's running a combo 1E, 2E game. So, meh. But still. <laughs> so this is like the little mini North Texas Con you guys are going to. Yeah. Yeah, we talked our gaming group into skipping our regular game and all going to the to the North Texas RPG Con warehouse, which apparently the first few rooms of is air conditioned. And we're gonna go there, play the pinball game, video game, and he's apparently gonna run some D and D, one point. Seven five, I guess. <laughs> what the what? <laughs> well, he says it's between one and two e. I'm like, fine. Do I get cheese making as a proficiency? <laughs> Bad Mike promised that Mike could have cheese making as a proficiency mm. just for mm. him. Mm. It's true. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Okay, so let's see. Well, this was a couple of weeks ago for for us now, so I'm having to remember. Um, Preston was not with us that past weekend, correct? Was it just you and me and Tim? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Preston got got bullied into fixing (laughs) up a house. Yeah, well, so we didn't have a whole lot happen again this time. Um, I remember the last episode we were talking about the game we were talking about how it was basically papers and paychecks because we were selling all of our stuff to try to buy the spell jammer ship uh, well we bought the spell jammer ship we got our crew we did all that other stuff and so we have started off on our first leg of the journey to figure out where the temple of existential evil is because Yes, as we've mentioned before, our DM is doing a mashup of Temple of Elemental Evil and the Hackmaster module, Temple of Existential Evil. As well as the return to Temple of Elemental Evil, too. Yeah, so there are elements of all three of these publications that he's just you know, mashed up into this singular thing, and now he's thrown Spelljammer into it. So if anyone was even remotely thinking about trying to flip through the modules and figure out what the heck's going on, no. <laughs> it's the it's asteroid not. of elemental evil. Yes. Pretty much. So anyway, um, the past game session on our brand new spanking ship, we go off. There's supposed to be a mining vill not a mining village, a farming village on one of the asteroids in the tiers of Salune, is that how yeah. you pronounce it? Yeah. Anyway. Called also not Hamlet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, anyway. Sorry. So we go there because 
we have heard that the temple, wherever it is located, is within less than a day's travel by ship from this particular rock. So we go there and we're trying to figure out where the temple is. Um, and we get stymied because at least half of the villagers are kind of in cahoots with the temple. And so as soon as they figure out that we're asking questions, they start not so subtly trying to kill us. And let's see, I think the, I think the game session ended shortly after everyone, let's see. The, the, the tavern brawl with the Umber Hulks. Yes, the, the, ta the tavern brawl with the Umber Hulks, the evil dwarf, and the two half-orcs all ganging up trying to kill our spellcaster, Jonathan, and my character and Mike's wound up we were looking for Jonathan because my character had found out a little bit of news from a farmer's wife and so we were going to tell Jonathan what we found out and we're on our way to the tavern where he had been trying to gather information but that was where the cultists or the people in Kahoot with the cultists had decided they were going to kill him while he was there in the tavern. So we're walking toward the tavern, and all of a sudden, there's kind of this explosion, and people are running in fear out of this building toward us as we're walking down the street. And my Jonathan is the pyro, the pyromancer. <laughs> yeah, pyro he likes he likes fireballs too. Yeah. He likes fireballs too. So we're yeah. walking down. I the like street. him already. <laughs> yeah. There's smoke. There's people screaming, running out of a building ahead of us. And my cleric Lena turns to Mike's elf and says, I think we found Jonathan. Yep. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. <laughs> and then we get in there, and Umber Hulks start climbing out of the flooring. It, it was it was weird. The, the yeah. whole thing was weird. I have a but, question because I'm not very familiar with the Spelljammer campaign setting. Uh, what do farmers on an asteroid farm? Well, apparently it had its own umberhawks. Apparently, yeah, oh. <laughs> it's like a dirt farm. Um, <laughs> farm dirt. But yeah, it was. It had its own atmosphere and everything, so people were growing regular crops there. Ah, gotcha. I did like when they tried to charge us the air tax for landing on there. Yes, because we were taking their good air and, and bringing our stale air. As the mayor goes, what, you think air grows on trees or something? <laughs> Actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. But anyway, so we did that. Jonathan nearly gets killed, manages to teleport himself back to the ship with only two hit points left to spare. And while he's on the ship by himself, a mysterious elven woman shows up. Um, and this was pretty obviously the Magic DM's, user. Yes, this is pretty obviously the DM's attempt to give us the information that we need to have. However, Jonathan, having a charisma of 10... And being a rather smart-ass individual on a good day was not in a very good mood, having only two hit points left and was in the middle of chugging a 
healing potion to try to get up to more. So this elven woman just appears on his ship and, well, he's less than polite to her. And so she mouths off back at him and disappears. And so we don't know anything. <laughs> tell, tell Jonathan I said he needs to get his hands on Polymorph Self. That's a mage, <laughs> that's a mage heal spell right there because you get 12 hit points back. True, true. Although I think of all, we got like a mountain of potions sitting around now, but I don't think any of them are polymorphs. Yeah. But yeah, he, he's very proud of his fireball spells and his ring of fire resistance. Yeah, so even if he gets caught in a backblast, he's, he's cool. <laughs> I target fireball at my feet. Ha! Pretty much. I will be the epicenter of my own fireball spell. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Oh, those were the days. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, and like I said, we're going to the little game thing this weekend. Unfortunately, he's going to charge a quarter for each play of the pinball game and the arcade game. And hey, like, those are good rates today. Hey, with inflation, that'd be equal to paying eight cents a game in the eighties. That was the eighties. <laughs> was a quarter in the 80s, Mike. Well, yeah, but... Anyway. So, emails. Emails. Yes, we have... He has emails. We do. Get down, get down. Get down, get down. The Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week, I hope that it's from a female. Oh, man! Alrighty. Our first email is from DMDDR. DDR. And he writes, Love the show. I discovered you fairly recently, and I've been trying to catch up over the past few months. Your show is a great distraction from grading exams and term papers. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Recording the show is also a great distraction. distraction. Uh, He goes on to say, I began playing D&D in 1983 with the Mincer Redbox. Played first and second edition through high school, but then went to college, got a job, started a life, blah, blah, blah. About three years ago, I joined a 4E game. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Quickly transitioned to Pathfinder and soon found myself a GM again. I am in the planning stages for a new campaign and would like to bring back classic D&D modules that have been repurposed to fit the homebrew story arc. For example, in my last campaign, I took B4, The Lost City, and by combining it with Bioshock references turned it into a unique and well-remembered adventure. Three factions, thief, cleric, mage, were separated by giant thugs who keep the factions from fighting each other. I also filled the pyramid with vermin and undead that could survive and be found in the environment. I mean, seriously, an owlbear? <laughs> yeah, you, can't go- you almost never go wrong with undead and vermin. <laughs> undead vermin. Hmm. There you go. The evil in the bottom of the pyramid had plenty of sacrifices if the factions stopped killing and plotting against each other. 
The but current- they won't do that. Yeah. <laughs> the current campaign is swamp-based, and I'm following a rough outline from Apocalypse Now. Or As- Heart of Darkness for those of us who went to college. Yeah. <laughs> As we go forward, the world gets less and less sane. I want to turn Castle Amber into a French plantation, providing the surrounding area with rare components and alchemical ingredients harvested by semi-sentient voodoo zombie slaves. Yow. So, what I'm asking is, do you have any examples of taking classic adventures, keeping the overall flavor, but turning it into something significantly and coherently different from the original? I don't mean simply changing monsters in a room, but a more overarching thematic alteration. Well, our DM is doing some weird stuff with the Temple of Elemental Evil right now. Huh? Yeah, that's, that's everything that's going on in your campaign right now, right? Pretty I, much. Yes. Um, well, let's see. I don't think I personally have ever changed anything to a tremendously huge extent. Um, the only module I can think of where I felt like I had to change a lot of it to make it workable in my campaign was Palace of the Silver Princess. I had to throw out about half of what was in the backstory and just totally rewrite it, it seemed. I've heard that from a lot of people. I mean, um, it, it, Palace seems to be one of those you either love it or you have to seriously retool it. Well, it was a good adventure idea, but the backstory that was presented to go with it was so specific that if you were wanting to drop it into an existing campaign, you would almost have to make a lot of changes. But the actual adventure itself, you know, was, you know, had some solid points to it. Um, Is that the one that they had to recall and then they rewrote it at the last minute? Well, well with the I, alleged art. I, yeah, I know they recalled it for art purposes. Supposedly, I've never seen you know the quote unquote original art, but apparently there was supposed to have been an art piece in the original um, Silver Princess printing that was deemed too risque by Lorraine Williams and the powers that be at TSR at the time. Or the Blooms, actually. Yeah, so yeah. yanked it. There are all kinds of different stories, but the original version, there's a PDF of it on the internet that you can find now. Hmm. Yeah, I, and the picture I've heard described, it's basically a female adventurer tied up and being you know, threatened by goblins. I mean, it's really not anything at all. Well, certainly not nowadays, but... Um, yeah. Although, I guess, to be fair, at the time, with the anti-D&D sentiment and people shouting Satanism and stuff, I could True. I could see an argument for TSR being a bit gun-shy about that kind of thing. And they became quite gun-shy about yeah, they, they it. Yeah, they went a little overboard, you know, trying to be politically correct with the game, but, you know, I, I, think, I think they were scared. Mm-hmm. Well, DMDDR is a guy after my own heart because I love doing exactly what he's talking about. I I just did it in my campaign by uh, reskinning a Michael Curtis uh, DCC adventure called Intrigue at the Court of Chaos. That's an adventure that takes place on the plane of chaos with a bunch of chaos lords, and I just shifted that all to the and reskinned it to a 
post-apocalyptic game where it's a bunch of insane computer AIs in a matrix environment that the players get sucked into. Mm-hmm. And it took a fair amount of, you know, like reskinning work, but the, you know, the adventure is written played out exactly the same and it was awesome. And I just found out yesterday that Bunnies and Burrows is available at DriveThruRPG as a PDF and downloaded it, went to Kinko's and printed it, and somehow, some way, I'm getting that into my campaign. We're gonna mm-hmm. we're, we're gonna we're gonna play. I hope my players don't listen to this. We're gonna they're, they're gonna be somewhere, and something is gonna take their minds and put them in little bunny bodies, and we're gonna play one game of Bunnies and Burrows in the cool. in the middle of the post-apocalyptic future. So well, hey, post-apoc. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so basically they're going to go somewhere and something will happen to them. Yeah, yeah. And th- okay, that's, yeah. There you go. That's, that's, that's doing what he's talking about, right? <laughs> wink, wink. Okay. Well, I haven't actually done it yet, but I have modified uh, Queen of the Demon web pits to be used with Victorious. I haven't actually had a chance to inflict it on Liz yet, but... Cool. Um, that's... But fortunately, when you get high level and you have dimension crossing stuff and everything, that's easy to work into, especially, you know, campaign settings where you already have that kind of thing as typical. But thanks for the email, DDR. Uh, wish we were more help. <laughs> ah, well. Anyway, our next email is from Kevin Long. Kevin! <laughs> Kevin! My friend Kevin. <laughs> And Kevin writes, Liz, the other two guys, and the old man in the back. This is you, Glenn. Hi, I'm Glenn. (laughs) So, I just got done listening to your con show. I am also listening to the con-con show on RFI. (laughs) I've only gone to one gaming con. That was Tabletop Con in Utah. 2014 was my first time. I had created a 3.5 game to run. No one signed up to play the game, so I ended up playing Star Trek for the whole day. Kevin. Nothing wrong with that. It it sucks to have an adventure and not be able to run it. Yeah, but being able to play Star Trek is pretty cool, too. So hopefully you found it a a win-win situation in the end. Um, Probably not the FASA version, though. So, so Kevin, next con you go to, sign up to run a Star Trek game and then do just what DDR (laughs) and I talked about, where they beam down on a fantasy medieval planet. Done. Ha ha! Yuck, yuck, yuck. Sounds like that uh, Red Queen thing they did at North Texas. Was it last year or the year before? Uh, Year before last, I believe. Yeah, where they had everybody moving from game system to game system. Well, yeah, especially yeah. in Star Trek. One minute you're on the bridge, Q shows up, the next thing you're Robin Hood. Done. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I am not a merry man. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, well, any more emails? We've got a couple more emails. All and right. then we're completely caught up, right? No. No? Oh. No. Uh, mm-hmm. why but do, we're treading why, water. Why, why, why do I feel another email bag show coming? <laughs> uh, we're we're going to try and, and pretty much stay where we are um, Right now I'm trying to do just enough emails And that leaves us with about five or six emails Still waiting on us every single time So if we can stay there Then we're I think we're doing pretty good yeah. Alright, I'm in, let's knock them out <laughs> 
Okay. Our next one is from Tony T. And Tony T writes, Hello, crew. Thank you for reading my previous email on the show. I wanted to suggest another review for you all. Scarlet Heroes by Kevin Crawford of Cine Nomine Publishing. It was a successful Kickstarter that arrived ahead of schedule. The main benefit to me is the single DM and single player scope of this rule set, since 99% of my playing is just me and my daughter. Kevin has a section how to easily convert any D&D module or really any OSR product to his mechanics in SH. Hope you can grab some copies and see what you think. Keep up the good work. I enjoy this podcast the most from WGP. Aw. Aw. <laughs> Tony T, deep in the woods of eastern Texas. Woohoo. Well, that's because he doesn't listen to Thaco's Hammer. <laughs> yeah, well. And he should. <laughs> All right. Well, um, as we've said before, um, if you really want us to recover something, contact the creator and have them send us a copy. Um, PDFs preferably, but you know, if, if there's only, I mean, cause if they send it and it's old school, classic D and D ish, we'll, we'll cover it, which I will take this as a point after the last show, there was a lot of posting around on the forums about, uh, how come Mike won't talk more about Victorious on save or die and need to talk more, need to, you know, pimp the the product i appreciate it um but after some discussion we we've really tried to keep save or die focused on classic dungeons and dragons and its retro clones and i know the line of a retro clone is a little fuzzy but we try to keep relative basically something that is recognizable classic D, maybe with some house rules so what if I wrote a science fiction role-playing game called The Rings of Taco? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and we've been sent a lot of stuff. And, you know, everything from science fiction, superhero RPGs, uh, urban fantasy and everything. And it's like, well, they have strength and wisdom as attributes. So it's almost like D&D. Or it was inspired by D&D. But you look at it, and there's not really a lot of mechanics it shares. We, we're just really worried about losing our focus. So if – I mean, we don't talk about Castles and Crusades, and it at least is a fantasy RPG. And if we're not going to talk about that, well, we really shouldn't talk about Victorious. So I appreciate it. Go to our Facebook page. Uh, do you, Yeah, I'd really appreciate your support, but we'll only be mentioning it in passing on the show. What we got to do when it's time is get you on other shows that do cover that genre. That's true, but I don't know of any steampunk gaming podcasts, though, or superhero Victorian, Victoriana type. I'm on it, man. I <laughs> haven't looked in a while, so who knows? I was going <laughs> to say, you could probably go on just a generic superhero game podcast. Or I suppose even just a generic gaming podcast. There's quite a few of those out there. Yeah. So you have options. Or or, or wait. Call me. Or or wait for the game to die, and then you can be on Dead Game Society podcast. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm not sure that's a winning strategy, but it is a possible. <laughs> it, 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 it is a possibility, yes. So anyway. So anyway, our next email is from James Kofelt. Kofelt? JC. Kofelt. <laughs> he gave us a pronunciation guide. Thank you, James. Oh, yes. I remember at the very end, pronounced Kofelt. <laughs> Sorry, James. <laughs> I should have put that up at the top of the email to remind myself. Well, see, he wanted us to feel like the Janelle Jakeways episode. You know, we get to the end and then we sure. figure out how to actually pronounce it. Ha-ha. Well, James Coffelt writes, Good Sir Glenn, I am but a young lad in his early 30s who grew up in Kentucky, Tennessee. Yeah! Now living in SoCal... And you will be glad to know that I knew the candy of which you spoke on episode 92. And saddened, too, I was when your glorious comrades were at a loss when you spoke of the wafers. In regards to the mention of the sacrament wafers of the Neko gods, I provide you here with an abundance of teachings, as was told to me by the divine oracle, the Internets. Behold... HTTP colon slash slash www.neko.com Crickets chirping. Uh, I'll put that in too. <laughs> and unfortunately did not add much to the... Or, and unfortunately, I thought they were rather disgusting when I was but a child. <laughs> and still do. <laughs> but you know what they are. They certainly did not add much to the suicidal soda cocktails we would make to stay up late for gaming. Oh, God. I remember those. A poisonous mix of Mountain Dew, Pepsi, Orange Crush, Pixie Sticks, Necco Wafers, Sweet Tarts, and or Nerds. All combined in red or blue solo cups. Which was, which was eagerly drank after consuming a spoonful of instant coffee granules. Great Cthulhu! Oh, come wow. on. Who hasn't done that at least once? Um, I haven't. <laughs> I have never consumed a spoonful of instant coffee granules. Well, I haven't done all that at once. Um... I mean, we used to mix the sodas, but... Yeah, I've mixed the sodas, but... Sweet tarts and pixie <laughs> sticks and... It's too bad wow. he, he grew up in Southern California, because if he'd stayed in Kentucky, he would know about A81. That's what we used to use in gaming. It's like this... They make it in Winchester, Kentucky. It's like this supercharged ginger ale. It was energy drinks before there were energy drinks. <laughs> wow. But yeah, no, no spoonful of instant coffee to stay up and study for a final in college? Really? No. 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 I, I drank coffee, basically, was the way I got mine. <laughs> that being said, Mike has been known to take whole coffee beans and chew on them. Oh, what? You? So. <laughs> Chocolate-covered coffee beans are the bomb, man. Yeah. And I only used to do that when I worked graveyard shift at 7-Eleven. I hardly ever do that anymore. Hardly. Hardly. Anyway, nothing like playing D&D on homemade, crack-laced, semi-drinkable battery acid. <laughs> Not the puny-ass energy drinks of today. These and we were kids. thankful. 
These kids got it easy nowadays, I tell ya. I'm amazed I still have functioning kidneys. <laughs> slaying goblins, laying waste to skeleton hordes, and taking treasures in the name of experience point glory, all while rocking out to a soundtrack only the 80s and early 90s could produce. To fame, to glory, to achieving fifth level. Forever a fan of the game and the show, James Caulfelt. Thank you, James. <laughs> no, no, wait. He's not done. <laughs> he's not done. Oh. Side quest. My wife and I were in a short-lived AD&D 1E campaign for several months last year. It was her first exposure to D&D. She enjoyed it very much. She even started her own collection of minis and dice. And she blames me for turning her into a nerd. I retaliate with... I merely awakened what lies within. Wow. Way to go, James. You rock. <laughs> Sweet. Besides, she must have liked nerds. You know, she married you, right? True. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I say whenever Liz is like, you, you must like nerds. You married me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're both members of the Luckiest Bastards Alive Club. Bastards. With bastard swords, right, Liz? No, no. We, we can't say it right. Yeah, not Carolyn. We can't say it right. True, true. Well, thanks for the email. Our last email from Nathan Manuel. Nathan. Nathan writes, Hello, fellow old school gamers. I have only just recently discovered your awesome podcast. As usual, I am late to the party. During an earlier podcast of yours, I recall the various DMs describing the amount of role-play versus combat in percentage terms. I guess my question I wish the Save or Die team to tackle is, how much does role-play affect your game during combat? Do the villains give soliloquies while rolling to hit? Do players describe in great detail exactly how they punch the monster in the face? The reason I ask is that combat is unquestionably the core activity that all gamers experience. Do you have any warnings or advice to improve the role-playing experience during the combat round? The best moments in gaming for me as a DM has usually tended to happen during the combat sequence. I will admit that the quality of role-play before the conflict can be intrinsic to the group's maximum enjoyment. When I run combat, I usually try to describe the action through the eye of the camera. I tend to ask the player what the audience experiences during his or her action. The reason I do this is that I treat the other players and myself as the audience during any one player's actions. I try to encourage players to describe in greater detail of what they do than say, I attack with my sword. I look forward to hearing all the DMs speak to this. Keep up the good work. Nathan. Thanks, Nathan. Anyone want to take this first? or? Yeah, I'll jump in there. Um, I My DMing style personally is a little bit of every DM I've admired. I just try and steal from them. And where I started picking up what I do now is from Michael Curtis because Mike, uh, he was in Hollywood way back when, but he doesn't like to talk about it because it involved him wearing a bear suit on camera. But Mike stands up at the table and he's very theatrical. He waves his arms around and he will even get into character, you know, and really role play like a little lady who moves his glasses down the end of his nose and start doing a little lady voice. So I try and do that 
But uh, I got a the last game where I got a little out of hand with it was uh, the players were uh, confronting a King Kong sized ape, and I slipped from uh, theatrical role playing into Andy Circus motion capture. And if DM Todd had been a little quicker with his Samsung smartphone, it would be on the internet now. But I saw I, <laughs> I saw him go for the holster. But and but and and that's how I encourage my players. You you you. You know, you you, uh, de- you you teach by showing, right? By demonstrating it yourself. Yeah. Um, Liz, you want to say something or shall I go on? Mm, well, I do. I like there to be some role play during the combat sequence. Um, I think it's great to have, you know, your master villain doing the soliloquy and that sort of thing, especially... You know, if you're if you're role playing someone who's got a smart mouth, you know, just basically egging on the opponents, especially if they miss, it's like, God, are you kidding? My grandmother can handle a sword better than that. <laughs> um, so I do think there's definitely a place for that. Um, as far as trying to get players to say precisely what they are doing. Um, it's a good idea, but you have to be kind of careful, too, because I know in a lot of games, people tend to do the house rule of, if you specifically say you're aiming for something, the DM says, you know, the DM then treats it as a called shot, and it's then subsequently becomes harder to hit, you know, so... You know, it's it does sound really great to say, you know, I take my great sword and I swing you know, at my opponent's head. It's like, oh, called shot to the head. Well, now you have a negative two modifier to actually hit it. So it's, what? So it's all going to depend on, you know, what your yeah. DM is going to do in combat. And mm-hmm. if if you know that they tend to do stuff like that, then obviously you don't want to pigeonhole yourself, you know, unnecessarily. But in a well, good, no, fast just, and loose basic game, you know, I say, you know, hey, go for it. Well, if you've got a yeah. DM like the first case you talked about, you just quit that game and go find yourself a good DM. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because well, I, I'm serious, because what we're talking about is a subset of a larger DMing skill, which is encouraging player advocacy. Yeah. Or p- player agency is what that's what I meant to say. Encouraging player agency in the game, which good DMs do and. Uh, less skilled or experienced DMs will accidentally discourage with stuff like what you just said, Liz. Mm-hmm. Penalizing a player for role-playing creatively. Well, uh, conversely, though, most of the DMs, and I've been in games where a DM has done just as Liz said, you get a minus two to hit, but if you still hit, you do extra damage. You know, So it's not a total loss. Um the point I was going to make is the amount of role-playing you put into your combat, again, this is going to sound like a bit of a cop-out, but it really depends on your group. Because there, I have gamed with people like Robert, Liz, mm-hmm. who, you know, he and I, when I used to do medieval reenactment, we'd get out there in our plate armor and rounded swords and beat the heck out of each other with sword and shield or... That sort of thing. So he liked to get very tactical about his describing his combats. And that's great. You know, I could then counter with that. But then there are other people 
who get annoyed with it and are like, you know, and maybe otherwise good role players, but it's like, well, I just want to know what the results of the combat are. I'm not that concerned about who spun what with who, where, you know? I think it falls under a lot like, you know, how do you handle role-playing, you know, especially like we talked last time about role-playing, you know, other genders or that sort of thing at the table. It's There should be nothing wrong with it, but you really need to know your group in order to make sure nobody's going to get all wiggy about it. Well, it's definitely some. I mean, you know, if, if DM A and his group are like a phase we went through when we were kids where we just wanted to kill the monsters. And, and it wasn't about role-playing. It was just about getting up, staying up late Saturday night and getting as many XPs as you could. When we were that age, that's all we were about. And if, if your group and your DM are all together in that, that's fine. Go 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 have fun and have at it. <laughs> but, but, but I think there is something here that's a, a goal to aim for in general. Yeah, although some people who are uncomfortable with that, you might have to do baby steps with them. You know, because you don't want to throw them so far out of their comfort zone right off the bat that they are so uncomfortable that they decide not to come back. But if you just kind of coax them along slowly, you know, they'd be great players in that regard in, you know, just a few months. Yeah. um, Like you were talking how Michael Curtis runs games. I'm not quite as exuberant, but I tend to do the same thing, taking on different personalities, trying to change my voice, my behavior. And I was running a game at one time, a basic expert game, a few years ago, and had this married couple in the group. And they had had some experience playing 2E. And they came in, and you know they're decent gamers and everything, but they were just indoctrinated in... Everything in the third person, you know, my character does this, my character says that. And, you know, I tried to get them out of that, you know, going, well, no, don't, don't say you did it. Say it. He's, you know, he's right here. What, what do you want? You know, that sort of thing. And it kind of freaked him out. Well, that's kind of what I meant, though, because it, what doesn't work is you need to say that in the first person. Okay, now you've told somebody what to do, and nobody likes being told what to do. But if you stay at them with, you know, you stay in first person with the NPC or whatever, you can mm-hmm. get people to come come your way gently, and they don't even know they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. This could if, be a whole you, show. This is a good topic. Yeah, it it potentially could. We could we could do a whole show on dealing with this. Write up the notes for it, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it, sir. <laughs> what a great idea! What a sir. great idea! Volunteer, you just step forward. It may be 105 by the time we get to it, but <laughs> anyway. Well, so was that you. the last email? That was the last email, and thank you for such a thoughtful and compelling topic, Nathan. Sorry we may not have answered you quite as well as you had hoped, but you may end up getting a whole episode out of it. So, you know, we shall see. And if you want to write us, where can you write us at? Jim. Oh, hell if I know. <laughs> uh, save or die at... Info. Podcast. Oh, say Okay. <laughs> I, but you should see the show notes I wrote for myself. Nowhere on which does that information appear. Liz, where do people write the show? 
<laughs> yeah, you're the one that actually checks it. Maybe I should be asking you. Maybe you should. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> okay. So, if you want to write the show, you would write us at Save or Die Podcast at gmail.com. Don't ask me about the voicemail number, though. Yeah. <laughs> or you can send us a voicemail at 940-536-3763. Lord. <laughs> what? No, I'm just, I got caught flat-footed. <laughs> <laughs> like, email. I don't know. All righty. You didn't tell us there was going to be a pop quiz. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, only... I guess I should have, I should have done it. Where do they write Jim? <laughs> I only I only do the website. You'd think I'd know simple anything like that. <laughs> Not my job. It's like, no, I'm sitting at the back. Don't pick me. <laughs> Liz wants to answer. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, take a break then, and then we'll move into top five for seven voyages of Zorhofen. <laughs> Xylerthon. Xylerthon. That's until, it. Until someone tells us otherwise. <laughs> the the Save or Die Top 5. In 5, 4, 3, 2, Top five, which we have actually heard uh, quite a few people seem to actually seem to like, so which is kind of gratifying. So hopefully we can keep it interesting without getting bogged down so much in the future. We we will do our best. Yes. Uh, before we start that though, um, I did want to give a quick shout out. There's a Kickstarter which is currently going by David Oakham. With um, I believe it's Okumart Press or Okum Press. Anyway, hmm. um, he's doing a Kickstarter for an old school print and play tabletop game called Darkfast Dungeons, and you basically you print and build the setup on the tabletop. You know, as much as you want or as little as you want. And from what I can tell on the Kickstarter, it looks like it's a pretty cool way if you've got young kids and you'd like to introduce them into the world of fantasy gaming this would probably be a pretty nifty way to get their toes you know dip their toes in the water as it were so you know go over there give it a look and see what you think and we'll have we'll have that up on the show notes when we go up and go the announcement yeah yeah i love his art style it is a cool art style. It is a. It's very it simple. Very, it's very simple and gestural. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very friendly sort of art style, if that makes any sense whatsoever. And that by that I am not trying to say that it's goofy looking in any way, but I think it has it has a character that just draws you in, and it, it it's really cool. I like it a lot. Okay, now. Seven Voyages. Xylarthon. Xylarthon. It is a retro clone of original D&D. It's mostly the three core books. 
Um, there's a few little additions. Not as much from Greyhawk as I would have expected, though, and has some interesting things here and there. And just so that the listeners know where we're coming from, we each chose one of the books to review. So our top fives will be coming from that particular book. Liz, which book did you choose? I chose the first volume, Characters in Combat. Which coincidentally is the same name of the first book in the Traveler Black Book series, which is kind of cool. I'm not sure that's a coincidence. Oh, (laughs) it was digest size too. Jim? Oh, I picked Magic, if you had to ask, which is volume three. I chose the Campaigns book, and we will cover some sample monsters later in Random Encounters. But right now, for our top fives, we will start with Liz. Woohoo! All righty. Well, my number five is I really enjoyed the treatment of alignment languages. Um, I know in past in past episodes we've been a bit meh on alignment languages. Nasty. But I really think that the way it's covered here, this is a way that I could see myself actually using alignment languages in a campaign. And basically, the way that it's covered here is it's not really used for actual communication. You know, people don't speak to each other in alignment language. Um, it's more of a scholarly sort of thing. Um, the, the language of law, you know, for your general scholars, the language of chaos tends to be what you would use if you are casting, you know, dark spells and reading from a cursed scroll. So, in that instance, I can see, you know, actually having those languages be extant and you know, using them, you know, they're they're almost like Latin in a way. You know, a virtually mm. dead language. But if you have studied and know it, if you find ancient writings, you know, you have a good chance of being able to understand them. Um, and there's a neutral language too, but it's um it's not the same as the Elvish language, but it is very close to it. So if I was going to use that, I would say, you know, if you if you knew Elvish, you might have a chance of being able to piece together something that may have been written in an ancient neutral um, script. So this isn't a language that every lawful character inherently knows. No, no, no. So it's okay. not like, you know, I'm lawful, so I automatically know the lawful alignment language, and then if I do something that turns me neutral, I can suddenly no longer understand the lawful language, and now I only understand the neutral alignment language. <laughs> it's like, no, there's, it, the way I am reading it, there's none of that, and it's, I think it's a cool way to do it. I, okay. I, could, I could live with this. I'm with you, Liz. I think they took something that's always been a really goofy, clunky game mechanic and given it the single most plausible in-game explanation I ever heard. The idea that in ancient times there were these alignment wars and there's this fragmentary language left over that some people know, but not necessarily. Okay. That's awesome. 
Cool. Okay. Jim? Did, did, did it sell you on alignment languages? Or are you still, yeah? Oh, no. I, if, if I were going to use them, I, I think that makes plausible sense because in the end, they're not really alignment languages. They're languages that have an affinity toward alignment. And that I can certainly use. Um, I might actually even just have the – since the chaotic language is there for black magic, I would probably do the same for law being the you know kind of positive magic. Kind of like, I guess, the way Dresden uses made-up Latin to cast his spells. <laughs> this episode's a correspond- huh? This episode's obligatory Dresden Files reference has been brought reference, to you by. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't really make our obligatory Doctor Who references until the series starts up again in August, so we just kind of have to make do with Dresden Files until then. So, anyway. Okay, yeah. Volume 3 and Magic. Top of my list, most of the uh, clerical spells have been included with the Magic user spells because in this version, there are no clerics. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I noticed that when I, I didn't really read it, but I flipped through characters in combat, and I noticed that unlike in original D&D where the three classes were fighter, magic user, cleric, the three classes are fighter, magic user, thief, and, he said, and no clerics. Now, yeah, I, I saw some mentions of a priest, but I don't know if that was an NPC or – Yeah, there, there was some spell lists for NPC – Evil priest, high priest, and witches, but the player characters don't get that because there's not a player character class of cleric. And on first blush, I was just like, wah, because this is supposed to be OD&D. But then I remembered when I was very first introduced to D&D for the very first time, and they're telling us about the character classes, cleric is the one where at first blush I went, well, who'd want to play that? Hmm. You know, why, why can't a mage heal? And, and this presents it that way, and it makes perfect sense. Well, I'm sure some people will f- will flip out and we'll get emails that say, oh, no, you can't be OD&D without clerics. Yeah, how so very dare you. Um, but, but, yeah, but there's I, a precedent. I my, gut, my gut is going, no, but, you know, you're right. I sit there and think about it. It's like, well, practically, why, what is the the rationale? I mean, clerics were basically there to give kind of a fighter spellcaster you know, kind of in the middle when it was first created. So, uh, I don't know. Well, I think it's, I think it's something that could take some work wrapping your brain around initially. But I also do think that this distinction helps to give this particular campaign world its own special flavor that it has. Yeah. That's true. Well, by okay. the time by the time I'd read through all the books, I I bought into that. Mm-hmm. I'd run it that yeah, way. The campaign world is called Red Tide. Was that what it was called? I don't know. I missed that part. It's not the campaign world of Zylarthan. Oh, he's <laughs> he's the guy doing the seven voyages. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a separate campaign setting, but this game doesn't have to be put in that campaign world. But anyway, the the premise of the campaign world was that most of the world's been conquered by chaos and all the races have basically been driven to this small archipelago of islands mm-hmm. as kind of the last holdout. 
And I thought that was a nifty idea. This isn't part of my top five, but I thought it was a nifty idea because it was a rationale of how you could have a Viking and a samurai adventuring together. Okay. Because they've all been jammed together as kind of a, you know, a refugees on this, these islands. So, anyway. But my top five. Five, I love the use of the term referee. <laughs> no DM, no GM. Not even judge, but I, which I kind of like judge from Judges Guild. But referee, that is you, – you don't get more old school than referee. That was really cool. Do they talk about having a caller? No. Ah, oh, well. Not in the campaign book. <laughs> Did it in the characters in combat? No. Okay. So no clerics, no callers. No <laughs> caller, no clerics. Nothing that begins with the letter C. If you liked playing the cleric caller of the party, you're in trouble. And Liz, number four. Okay. Well, I would say my my number four would be uh, there's one portion, and I did not write down what page number this is, but in the Characters in Combat book, um, when they're actually talking about the combat, at one point, the book actually says... The surviving characters in the adventuring party should feel an obligation to treat the body, if there is one, and possessions, if any remain, with respect. That's cute. (laughs) (laughs) That's sweet. That's very sweet. (laughs) That's a good try, Mr. Spalding. A for effort. But Mr. I don't Spalding. think anyone is going to do that. Oh, I can, to- I-, I can totally loot a body with complete respect. <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> they'll show respect to the possessions, at least the valuable ones. <laughs> I mean, oh. I will say, most of, the, most of the games that I've been a part of, when one of our number dies, we have always done our very best to bring the body back with us to civilization and to make sure that it got a proper burial based on the rights and beliefs of that character. You know, whatever God he or she worshipped, you know, we did our very best to take the body to that temple, you know, that we could find and, you know, try to do what he or she would have wanted done. Um that is not to say that we would not distribute magic items amongst the rest of the party if we felt it was necessary, but we did always try to make sure that we didn't just leave the body behind in a cave somewhere. Yeah, unfortunately, sometimes certain clerics <laughs> decide to carry the body with them by animating dead. <laughs> the de- getting them to open doors. The DCC <laughs> character funnels are so brutal <laughs> That we had to come up with a house rule that the same player who had other level zeros left got first dibs on looting his dead guy before the other <laughs> player swooped in. You had to make house rule to determine loot priority. That's right. <laughs> nice. <sighs> There's love there. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my number four. I, I thought that was that was a... Hey, that was a good try. I don't know how much people will follow it, but A for effort. Way to go. <laughs> okay. Jim? I, uh, this is a subset of just the rule set as a, as a whole, 
but they were written like this is some alternative timeline version of if Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson had really good writing skills, copy editing, and layout, while still being the same font and layout style as Ill Rules. So I love that the uh, spell descriptions are those simple, old-school, one-paragraph spell descriptions that mostly require some level of DM fiat to educate, which I think is a good thing. And, and, and by yeah. extension, player input, too. The exact effects will vary from table to table. I mean, I can play my games both ways. I love first edition AD&D where it's like math and engineering and you know exactly what that fireball is going to do. Or you should. You better. But I, but I like it this way too, a lot. Okay. My number four, the game runs on a silver standard. Not a gold one. And the historian in me jumps up and down for joy for that. Because... Gold, you know, I, I know it's just a game mechanic and gold pieces are gold pieces, but it's like I swear gold is like you dig it up in the garden with your potatoes in your average D and D world. As far we'll be as the, eating them next, mark my words. Mark my words. That's right. <laughs> you know, I never thought about that. I saw an infographic once that showed physical representations of the entire gold supply of planet Earth, and it would fit inside like the Empire State Building, and they they had it like segregated by Fort Knox and different places. There's not that much gold on this planet, like there no. is in D and D. No, there's not, and that's something I try to get across to my students when we talk about. Um, in history around the turn of the century, the idea of, well, why don't we all just go back to the gold standard? And it's like, well, see, the problem is we don't, when an economy grows, unless you have a regular influx of new gold to, to rise along with the raising of your, your economy, you end up with deflation, which is great if you don't owe anyone any money, you know, your dollar ends up worth more and more and more, but if you actually, like most of the human race, owe mortgages and car payments and stuff, it'll kill you. But because in the end, there's really not much gold in the world. And there's tons, no pun intended, more silver. So I, I thought that was really great. And in most societies, silver has been the metal of common currency. I mean, the pound sterling, sterling silver. So that's what I liked. I've tried doing that in D&D games before, and a lot of time my players just have trouble wrapping their brains around it. I've always had to abandon it. Gold. So. Huh? Gold. Gold. Alrighty. Uh, number three, Liz. Okie dokie. Um, one of the things I noticed, and this made me think a little bit of Dungeon Crawl Classics, the thief slash halfling um, character, one of the things that they are able to do, um, or one of their special talents, is luck. And once per combat encounter, a thief may either re-roll one of his own die results, or he may call for a re-roll of any die result by the referee that affects only him. So, you you get a mulligan. <laughs> Does that constitute a caller? No, I guess not. Oh, but but the part where you get to make the D, the DM or the I'm sorry, the referee re-roll mm -hmm. a roll against you. The, I mean that that would be worth doing just to do it. Yeah, whether, that's whether, yep. He missed. I don't care. Re-roll it. Re <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make you re-roll. I just want to make you re-roll. 
So yeah. I thought that was a very interesting um, variant for the thief class. And since halflings are, you know, a races class that have a lot of things in common with thieves, um, I'm extrapolating that a halfling would be able to do that too, along with the hide and shadows and other stuff. The race bennies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I must admit, the more, as time goes on, the idea of the halfling luck is really starting to grow on me. That sounds like it would be a neat races class ability in classic D&D. So, anyway, Jim. I can see Joseph Goodman and I have been a corruptive influence on this podcast. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, in the Magic Book Volume 3, I loved the fabricating magic item rules. I mean, those are in OD&D, but there's a lot of hand-waving, and it's very uh, open to interpretation. Here, it's nice and tight. This is exactly what you need to do, what level you need to be, how much you know money, different stuff it takes to do it. And in some ways, I think it's... It's what's in here is a better representation than in uh, first edition AD and I was going to ask, you know, because I remember I think it was the Dungeon Master's Guide in first edition that kind of went into that to an extent. Um, I was going to ask you what you thought of how it compared. Well, I don't want to steal any of Mike's uh, Volume Four Campaign Thunder, but I like the uh, dungeon creation rules in this game better than in the Dungeon Master's Guide too. I don't know that's heresy, right? Hmm. <laughs> Stone the Blasphemer! <laughs> That's okay. But, um, and actually, this kind of segues off of your number three. Uh, my number three is they have incorporated a rule that I've really been wanting to incorporate into my game for a while. And that's the, from it originally suggested in an old uh, Dragon magazine, basically, treasure has to be spent to get XP for it. Oh, thank you. And that is cool. That's that's iconic. That's you know, a good way to get rid of, you know, so people don't wander around with a million gold pieces in their pockets and <laughs> yeah. um, that's the way dad did it. That's the way America does it and it's worked out pretty good so far. <laughs> <laughs> yes, especially when you're trying to make magic items. Though that does remind me, I was going to ask is it harder to make a magic item than to go into a dungeon and find one? Just hypothetically in general or by these rules? In, in the game, in, the, in Seven Voyages, would you say? Because that's one of the gripes I've heard about some of the you know, magic item creation rules is you know, for all the cost and the labor and the work and everything. It's a lot easier just to go hunting around in a dungeon and find somebody's wand of fireballs. Well, I mean, I don't, it depends on your definition of easier. I can sit in my lab and probably not kill myself, <laughs> even though it costs a lot of money and a lot of time. Okay. And also, I would think, you know, you're, it's pretty much a crapshoot when you're going out just finding magic items. If you want something specifically, you know, I want this, you know, what are the odds that my DM is going to just happen to let me find this anytime soon. Well, and that gets into high magic campaign worlds that kind of annoy me. You can just go down to the local magic mart and <laughs> you know, pick up, you know, buy three wands, get the fourth free and 
you know, that sort of thing. It was interesting. When Tim Cask was running his OD&D campaign here in town, I had a magic item I wanted to create, and at fifth level, he was going to let me create it. So I had all my money saved up, and I had my stuff to build it with, but he told me I needed a month of uninterrupted time, and it took forever for the group to get to a place where we were banged up enough we had to hole up in a town, and everybody <laughs> did, did their thing while I sat there and made my little amulet. <laughs> Everybody wants to rush off and do something else. We're bored. We don't want to sit around while you make stuff. I just wanted to make a taser. <laughs> Is that so wrong? I'm sorry. Am- so. Amulet of Stunning. Well, I, I'm not going to say anything. My elf has got a ring of shocking grasp, and she uses her longsword to just whack and zzz. So, you know. And it doesn't have charges, which is even cooler. But anyway... All right, number two. Number two. Okay. Uh, my number two is the intelligence stat. It is different for PCs and NPCs. Dun, and dun, dun. I, I totally missed that. I like it. How's it different? Okay. It, basically, it says for player characters... The term intelligence actually denotes formal education or knowledge, especially relating to books and literacy. It has nothing to do with how smart the character is or is perceived to be. It's education. Because they're expecting the player. Right. Ah. It's a lot more responsibility on the player. So... It is the player's cleverness, you know. Or lack thereof. Right. You know, you can't just say, well, my, I am playing someone with an 18 intelligence, so I should have known that I had to do that. It's like, no, this is not how smart, you know, your character is inherently. This is how much education your character has. So that has nothing to do with whether or not you would think, you know, hey, maybe I should, you know, check to see if there's a trap on this door before opening it. You know? Well, that's certainly old school. Now, and then he goes on to say, when intelligence is referenced for non-player characters and monsters, the ability will have its normal meaning. So That's interesting. Uh, that's, that's very interesting, and I rather like it, you know. Um, I can see how others, you know, would not care for it, but I like that it puts more responsibility on the player to make a good judgment call. Oh, and let me, uh, I'll jump in with that comment, applies normally. Mm -hmm. Seven Voyages is not made for new players. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much. uh, This is a game that's specifically made for veteran gamers who are wanting to play old-style D&D. Yeah, it even it said as much in the introduction to the first volume, you know, it, that it was not going to go into, you know, belaboring. It's like I'm not, you know, it's not going to tell you. This is how you role play. This is yeah, what a polyhedra not, is. Yeah, it's not going to go into any of that. You know, the game is making the assumption that you already are familiar with role playing and you know what all this stuff means. And so, yeah, it just comes right out and say it and says it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Jim. 
I totally lost track of where I was. Oh, Number okay. two. <laughs> Volume three, Magic. <laughs> the um, uh, I like the intelligent sword creation rules, which again is something that uh, there's a version of this in OD&D, but I like what the, what's here better. And it's the same as the... Uh, the fabricating magic item rules and the other ones. It's by better. I just mean it's cleaner and it's a simpler, uh, more aesthetically pleasing system. And and it's also interesting that any magic sword is intelligent in this game. So that you've got to figure all that out. If it's got a, there's no such thing as just a plus one sword. If the sword's got a power, it's got some kind of intelligence and ego and purpose in life. And I love that stuff. Well, that certainly would make it a little more. Interesting than the you know golf bag full of magic swords. <laughs> well, well, right. It, make, it makes it more interesting. It makes it more appendix in, more like the literature yeah. the game is based on. Mm-hmm. Mm, this looks like a flame tongue is needed. Yeah, give me that. Uh, oh no, Frostbrand for this one. Thanks. Yeah. Congratulations, you just picked up Stormbringer. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, not again. Anyway, cool. So, well, I'm. I like that. Does it give any advice on you know names and personalities for for such weapons? Or oh yeah, Every, anything you want. Okay, so there's it's a, there's it's, a little table to roll it up. Okay, which is very old school too. Tables. Okay, um, for the campaign world uh, book, I'm not really sure why this is the campaign book. It, I think it might belong a little better in the characters and combat book, but you know. One thing I will say is there is an extremely elaborate and detailed description of the surprise and initiative system for this game. Hmm. It's almost like the Mr. Spaulding has been looking at the internet for decades or at least years and years of thousands of thousands of different of people arguing surprise and initiative over and over and over again. He said, okay, fine. This is how it's going to work in this game. And there will be no confusion. I think you're right because there's a whole John Peterson-esque quality to the way this entire thing is written. It's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's an informed interpretation of the rules. Yeah, and while you may not agree with him, you know, with his particular interpretation, it's at least based in the original data, I think, at least as far as I can tell from the campaign book. So I liked that, that if nothing else, he is closing the door on the interpretation arguments, <laughs> well, what, which, as, I've, which as somebody once said, is like listening to a bunch of rabbinical Jews arguing the Talmud. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> But I have a question for you, Mike. Is, is, mm. do, do you like this because you agree with it, or do you like it for the execution of it? I like the execution of it. Okay. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily use a system exactly like this, but I will say I would use this system for a while before I made my decision, rather than a lot of systems that you know you just kind of read and go, oh, yeah, that's not going to work. You know, nah, that's not really my style. Um. So, and I'd get it right because it's described in intense detail. <laughs> this is a crunchy. Oh, by the way, I also like how elves, dwarves, and halflings get the same check for secret doors in dungeons, mm-hmm. which I liked. This is a crunchy rule loving side of you I don't think I've seen before. Well, I, I, I don't mind crunchy rules when 
they add something, I think, to the game. Um, all too often, it's like people just get into crunch because they're trying to they're trying to create exceptions to the system. You know, I mean, you think about it. A lot of things that That's are what... added to role playing games are these. This is an exception to the way the rules work in this way, or that way, or this is my new exception. I mean, and it. It, you can go down the, the path of Splatbook that way if you're not careful. Oh, that's very well said. So, well, thank you. I still don't know that I you know, would like this system long term, but I would su- certainly give it a fair shake. And now, number one, Liz. Dun, dun, dun. All righty. My number one. Um, on... Page 46, there is a zero hit points table. And I think this is a very interesting idea on what can happen to your character when you get to zero hit points in combat. So it's kind Um, of a death's door thing? Kind of. um, It's hard to describe. Uh, There aren't any negative hit points in this rule set. Basically, if you get, if you're inflicted more damage than what your current hit point total is at the time, it simply reduces you to zero. There's no negative two, negative five, or anything like that. Once you get to zero, then you roll a 20-sider, and then you check the zero hit points table. And a lot of it is, well, it's stuff that could theoretically take your character out of the adventuring lifestyle afterwards. Well, like um, crippled? Yeah, something like that. Um, you know, for instance... <laughs> Missing a limb, if that counts as crippled. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, they've got things like, you know, delayed death. You know, you, know, you will die in one to six melee turns. Um, but you get something called an adversity check um, that if you make it, you can still fight. You know, you're not just knocked unconscious. I mean, you're still going to die in one to six melee turns if you're not, you know, helped. But, but you get to, you get to sit around for six rounds hitting stuff screaming, this is Sparta. Yeah, instead of, you know, one to six rounds, it comes to your turn. You say, okay, you know, what did you roll on initiative? Six, what do you do? I bleed, you know. <laughs> you, you do I bleed some more. Yeah, you can still fight, but you are going to die within, you know, however many turns unless you have, you know, assistance. Um, and there's stuff like severed limb. Then there's fatal wound. Again, death in one to six full turns unless surgery is performed. And just about anyone can attempt surgery. You don't have to have a cleric, you know, because there aren't any clerics in this game system, but you don't have to be specifically a healer-type character to be able to do rough, you know, you know, rough battlefields. Yeah, yeah. You're, Civil you're, War surgery. You're not talking right. about scalpel and sutures. You're talking about no. hit, hit it with the branding iron and cauterize it. Yeah. Um, and bone saws. Right. Um, and because of that, if you survive the surgery, 
then there is a very good chance that you're going to permanently lose some constitution or something because of the rigors of what you have gone through, not just the wound, but what you had to go through to get it fixed. Uh, yeah, it says a character that survives surgery will permanently lose one point of constitution. Um, but, you know, even if you survive it, you're going to have to convalesce for a long time. <laughs> you know what that reminds me of? The resurrection tables out of the back of Judge's Guild's Tejil Manor. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you're right. Which, even if, you know, when you try to resurrect in Tejil Manor, you could still come out horribly scarred or, you know, your your arm is withered or all sorts of weird – is like, well, yeah, you're resurrected, but you're not just popping up all fresh and – you know, fresh as a daisy, ready to go. Yeah, um, and – You were brought table- back from the dead, not cloned. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and the table – the table sounds pretty harsh in some ways, but – surviving combat is pretty harsh too uh, yeah. unless you have access to some pretty nifty healing spells you know if you're being subjected to you know messy battlefield quote unquote surgery i think this is very realistic of what you could expect to have happen to you afterwards and you know maybe it would make player characters be a little more careful before just, you know, throwing themselves into battle with everything that comes their way. Well, since almost certainly it's going to be players of D&D coming to this game and giving it a try, I imagine it'll take a few sessions to sink in. (laughs) (laughs) These rules are whacked, B.A. Every time somebody shoots me, my character dies. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, if you're going to sign up for this level of old school, you've got to know what you're getting into, which is come if the, once the combat starts going a certain level of badly, you're already rolling up the next guy. Yep. Or running like a scared old woman. And... One or the other. Yep. <laughs> okay. Jim, you're number one. Retreat? Run from danger? No, never. <laughs> okay, you're dead. Oh, my number one thing in the magic book is that uh, – Okay, with clerics taken out of the game, most of the player character spells that you would want to have are given to magic users. Your standards like heals and cure poisons and even, you know, sticks to snakes. But they include spell lists for these NPC classes, evil priest, high priest, and witches, which we mentioned earlier. And there are spells on their spell list and spells and uh, explanations in the rules that player characters don't get. And I love that. I love that, that the bad guys, or, or I guess the high priest isn't even a bad guy. A high priest would be a good NPC. But that, you know, the bad guys are the only ones that get a darkness spell or an astral spell or death touch. Yeah, I mean, PCs get a lot of advantages simply by virtue of being player characters. I don't see that there's a problem with NPCs getting some bennies, too. I just... I mean, obviously, because of my association with Dungeon Call Classics, I, the more beholding things really are, have you. To the, I, <laughs> the more beholding things are to the source literature and appendix, and the better I love them. So, you know, in that milieu, you know, the hero doesn't understand every single spell that's in the, the entire world, whether he knows it or not. I mean, 
even in, right. Jack, in Jack Vance, they're like lucky when they get one spell, and that the you know NPC the witch comes along and oh, I've got Conjure Demon here, <laughs> and you don't. Nah, I love that. Yeah, well, and it makes sense to a degree. I mean, I mean, just by virtue, I mean, part of D and D is. Let's face it, when you kill the evil magic user, what's the first thing that the play- PC magic user does? Rush for a spell book. <laughs> you got because that he's, right. <laughs> he's got stuff. Odds are he's got stuff you don't because they different have different things. So why not? But anyway. Oh, it's Hi. a shame. Your magic user is lawful. He doesn't speak the chaotic alignment language. He can't read that spell. <laughs> mm-hmm. He... Yeah, I wonder, did, did it say anything about whether, like, lawfuls could learn chaotic or vice versa in the uh, first book, Liz? It doesn't say anything one way or the other. I think, okay. I think it's being treated as an old language. Um, you probably could, if you wanted to, you know, take the time to learn it. Um, although I will say that does remind me um, – as in other versions of D&D, depending on how high your intelligence stat is, is how many languages your player can know. However, the referee <laughs> randomly rolls for your languages. Ouch! Um, there is a way that you can specifically... You know, choose a language, but I think it's um, part of the. Um, there are rules on how you can trade off points. You know, two for one, that kind of thing mm-hmm. for various stats. And I believe if you specifically do that um, uh, to for languages, then you get to choose in that instance. Ah, okay. But you know, just for your native intelligence, you know. The referee is deciding these are the languages your character knows. You don't get to decide. Okay. All righty. Well, I guess my number one will be in the campaign book, book four. By the way, book two is the monster book. Book three is magic. Book four is campaign. There is a specific section where it talks about the referee encouraging PC improvisation. Player, player improvisation, even so far as saying, regardless of what it says in this book, say, find a secret door on a one or two and six, if they come up with something specific like tapping each section of the wall, look, listening for hollow points, regardless of what the rules say, kick that up to about an 85% chance of finding it. Like the old pour water on the floor and see which way it flows. Right. And again, this gets back to what Liz was saying about the intelligence. You know, the player's experience and intelligence is rewarded here. And I like that because that's, you know, I I get into my grousing with my DM about, he's like, what's wrong with skill systems? What's wrong with having skill systems? Like, nothing much. But the problem is, the more detail you get a skill system, the more you inherently train players to think, oh, I can't do that. I don't have the skill. So they don't even try. And to me, that takes away a lot of role-playing there. I mean, I, I try actually, something. I actually evaluate uh, RPGs by how much the players have to stare at their character sheet to figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
And I'd rather have my players sitting there talking about, okay, I try this, I try this. And then, you know, well, the only time they look at their character sheet is hit points and gear, you know? Opinions vary. Some people love skill systems, and that's okay. You're just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You're preaching to the choir on this podcast. anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, that's our top fives. Now, let's go into Random Encounters and talk monsters. We take what we want and leave the rest. Just like your salad bar. Muffin up must leave. Presto! You will come up no more. What? Huh? What'll come out no more? Random Encounters. Random Encounters. Now, as you might expect for a game that's based on, at least to a degree, on original D&D, it's got a lot of the old favorites in there. There are some new ones... But most of them are either just your old favorites or a different tack on an old favorite. They had a version of the Thowl in there, but he didn't call it a Thowl. He called it a Thoblin. It was very interesting. This was written with the OGL, so he did an awesome job of including and reskinning classic monsters that you want to absolutely have in the game that are not in the OGL. So he reskinned them and renamed them. And that was yeah. awesome. Like I can't, I can't even remember what he called a beholder, but it's like some name you'd go, okay, what the hell is this thing? The Phantasmoria. And then you start reading it. Well, it's got a large central eye that's got an anti-magic ray and ten other eyes. You're like, oh, I get it. Ding! I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> or the Thoblin. Or various other things. So what was the Thoblin? The Thoblin was basically the Thowl. The, oh, right. Yeah. Um, the Which everybody suspects was originally a typo but then they later it was supposed to be a ghoul but it was a thule foul so instead they turned it into what was it a troll a goblin and a ghoul hybrid with a percent liar <laughs> <laughs> oh yes and on all these let's say it is percent lair he got that correct on these monsters <laughs> just make that clear but we each chose a monster to talk about so Jim, you start off with the monsters. A monster? I don't think I can get it down to one. Okay, I'm going to get it down to a class of monsters. Is that good enough? Okay, yeah. I guess too bad if it isn't. I did it anyway. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, I, I, it, uh, it was just a, the, I got a warm fuzzy when I saw that he included a class of monsters that were included in OD&D but had to be removed later because in the 1970s, the John Carter of Mars books were still in copyright, and now the first three or four books are no longer in copyright. So, Oh, Bar- my God. Bar- Did you steal mine? Barsoomian monsters and races, and just explicit as hell, and all of them. Ah! You stole mine! <laughs> Okay, well, I'll back up to androids. I chose Martians. Okay, you can have those. I'll back up to androids and robots then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like we even got different parts. Ah! Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't steal anyone's. <laughs> That'll teach you to call on me first. Huh? That'll teach you to call on me first, Professor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Okay, so you're going to do... Androids, is there anything in particular you wanted to talk about them, or just cyborgs and androids? 
Well, I mean, you know my taste in games by now. I, I love me a little cross-genre mashup, and the idea that in the middle of the dungeon there's an android or you turn a corner and hit a robot, I love that. Mm-hmm. Or a cyborg. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, it certainly doesn't get more old school than that, so... I mean, it was okay. good enough for Gygax, it was good enough for Arneson, it's good enough for me. <laughs> Good enough for Bloodsaw and Judges Guild. There you go. And and most of all, good enough for Jim Ward. Absolutely. So, okay, Liz? Okay. I know you're all expecting me to pick kobolds. Well, I'm not going to do it. You're not? I'm not. I've chose instead the monster known as the False Gnome. And worse than a gnome. That's right. So these smallish humanoids often look like gnomes or dwarves in the dark, but they are in fact man-eating monstrosities with mouths framed by crab-like mandibles. In addition, they have diamond-hard talons for ripping flesh as well as for efficiently burrowing through the earth. Gazing directly into their eyes will cause confusion as per the spell. Wow. If Perhaps that's a this is a, a tiny little underhulk. <laughs> <laughs> like if you if you don't already hate gnomes, running into one of those. Oh, wait a minute, there's a gnome in EQ. One <laughs> more reason. Although maybe you can crack their, you know, arms and maybe. Well, no, actually, that was mandibles. So. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I guess maybe it is teeny little underhulks. It's, it's, it's a, another. It's a, it's a tiny little underhulk. Because if it's a reskin of anything else, I don't know what. Yeah, but I, I like that. I think that's, you know, you're expecting, oh, that's just, you know, you see what looks like a party of dwarves coming at you in, from the other end of the dungeon corridor. And then, you know, they get to you and rawr! Rawr! I'm a monster! <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you and Oak Spalding would get along great anyway, Liz, because he dedicated the whole rule set to someone named Julie, who was, and it says in the dedication to Julie, who was kind even to the kobolds. Yeah, I, I saw that too. I like that a lot. And just so no one gets disappointed, I will make a brief mention of kobolds. In this particular book, there is a kobold king. Dun dun dun! So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I thought Mike was the Cobalt King. <laughs> nah, he, I'm Prince Consort at yeah, best. I was gonna say he, he's he's the Cobalt Consort. Okay. Yep. Anyway, Cobalt King, and they have extra hit dice, extra morale, cool stuff like that. Um, but yeah, um, I do like Cobalts a lot. But I must say, the write up for them in this book, as in with. Many of the original old school stuff, they, they don't, they're not really fleshed out that much. So there's not a whole bunch of interest to say about kobolds. But I thought the false gnomes were, were pretty keen. Teeny tiny little umberhulks. <laughs> well, Mike, since I stole yours, let's maybe we can parse it and, and divide the baby. If all the Barsoomian races and monsters had to be taken out of the book except one that you could pick, which one would you pick? Oh, like what was your favorite? Oh, as a DM or <clears throat> referee, 
I'd say I'd want to keep the Tharks. Okay, see, I would have gone White Apes. So, <laughs> Well, that was a close second. The we, White we, Apes were a really close second. But, of course, the Tharks, you can get them riding the the Bants, or, or not the Bants. Thoats. Thoats. And, and, you know, just have a horde of them coming down on, like, big multi-armed 12-foot green Mongols. <laughs> see, you know, you, you know your heart... Ask Edgar Rice Burroughs fan when you're reading through this thing, you go, they got the listing for thoats, but you go, wait a minute, there should be greater and lesser thoats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, I, I'll admit that never occurred to me. But yeah, I mean, he covers it, and I wonder if this was a bit of an homage to the TSR Warriors of Mars book, you know, giving all the, I mean, because he's got all the Martians in here, the the red, the green, the black, the white, the yellow, got the Bants, the Thoats, the And kind of like, like you were saying about the whole campaign setting, there's an in-campaign setting explanation for how they all ended up there. The Martians? Yeah, yeah, there was like some explanation, you know, the, the people from Jupiter, there were some creatures from the Jupiter races too, had like... They'd been in a war, and these Martians all got marooned on whatever planet you're playing your D&D character. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, actually gives a rationale of what they'd be doing. And some of the tech weaponry they got, the Reds are probably the best for PCs to run into because they've got the, you know, code of honor thing. Yeah. <laughs> Try that against some player characters and see how it works for you. <laughs> right. It's like, no, no, I will not use the atom gun because you're only wearing swords, so I will wear swords. <laughs> yeah, the moment I get your atom gun, <laughs> I'm never using anything else. And a radium blaster. <laughs> so, but yeah, these are great. And if you ever wanted to do use these rules for Barsoom, I mean, do a do a swords and planet campaign. You've got a lot of stuff right here. It wouldn't take much tweaking at all. So, like my Martians, well done, Mr. Spalding. And so, unless we want to say anything else about uh, monsters, I'll just say I like that, like OD&D and Holmes, they don't get bogged down in lots and lots of monster descriptions. You know, most monsters have two or three sentences Unless they go into, well, you know, if you run into 100, they will be led by a block, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> if you run into 300, you should turn around and flee. <laughs> run quickly. So I really like that old school feel about it. And let's not forget percent and layer. Any last words? Or should we actually go to products of your imagination and grade this thing? I, I got nothing else on Monsters. Time for some poi. Okay. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. Where are the Cheetos? They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier when we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Poe. Dun, dun, dun. And here we are. Now we're going to talk about format, layout, and art. And I turn it over to you two. Woohoo. Well. Ladies first. Well, obviously, he worked very, very hard to make sure that all of these books 
had the look and feel of the original Little Brown books. Um, the layout, um, the typeface, it's, it's very well done. Um, you get the info you would expect from the Little Brown books, but monsters, spells, etc., are actually given in alphabetical order. order. <laughs> Yay! We're <laughs> getting getting wild here, and he's like, "Hey!" <laughs> so they obviously listened to an earlier episode. Oh yes, I, I'm <laughs> sure that was, I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Yep. <laughs> hey, Liz and Jim and the others want alphabetical order monsters. I never thought of that. <laughs> But yeah, you you have things in alphabetical order, so you have a general idea of where you can find them. Um, the information is arranged in a more intuitive way just across the board. And there's a table of contents. <laughs> <laughs> so if you print out the book or you order a print book, you know, you're... You, you, you've got the table of contents, you know, as has been pointed out to us before. You know, if you're just doing an e-copy, you know, you've got the find search with, you know, Adobe Reader, etc. You don't necessarily need a table of contents so much with electronic stuff. But I like them, and I tend to want print over electronics anyway because I'm a dinosaur. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> So yeah, you've got all this stuff. Um, as far as I could tell, the art is all free content stuff, but it's excellent quality work. And yeah, let me let me say that in the back of the fourth campaign book, mm -hmm. he gives credit to each piece, even when it's uh, public domain art. He says where it's from mm -hmm. in a list of all four books and each page and where they're from, which I thought was pretty classy. The, yeah. the attributions and citations and appendices were spectacular. And in fairness of full disclosure, he mentions save or die in the suggest internet uh, sources section. So, podcast. Well, that so. was nice. <laughs> that was my favorite part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, I lie. My favorite part was that uh, mapping software he cited in the appendices because I went and got it, and it's awesome. Hexographer. And cartographer? It's called Hexographer, and I've started mapping my own campaign world with it. There's like a free oh. a free online version you can use in your browser, or it's not that expensive, like 20 bucks to download it, and it runs on anything. Is it different from Fantasy Cartographer? Uh, I never had Fantasy Cartographer. I remember when you could like buy it on CD or whatever. But uh, Okay, because I noticed he references that an awful lot when it came to building campaign worlds in the fourth book. But anyway, I was just curious. So, yeah, um, even with free content art, um, it's all very nice looking and the pieces were chosen with care to reflect the surrounding text. You know, you don't get the impression anywhere that any old piece of art was just stuck in an area that had white space in it. Um, it was all very thoughtfully done. So, Why is there next to the... Next to the false gnome, a picture of a Jeep Grand Cherokee. <laughs> Wait a minute. This picture of a gremlin has four wheels and pinstripes. <laughs> 70s joke. Never mind. Sorry. Oh, there you go. <laughs> hey, that's one of my dream cars. Yeah, Mike wants a lime green 
Or was it a lime green a gremlin with a lime green flame job? That's a lime green with a flame job and mag wheels. Ah, yes. Okay. <sighs> there we go. That would be yeah. awesome. I love this thing. I, I mean, I fell in love with it. I, how many gajillion retro clones have there been of OD&D at this point? And this is the first one I, I read that I said, I want to buy this and I want to run it. And that's no bang on the other ones. Like, to, but to compare apples to sort of apples like swords and wizardry is awesome rule set and if i it was my desire to run like a rule cyclopedia version of D game i'd just go buy swords and wizardry and run that but if i want to run sit down and conscientiously run an D campaign these this is the rule set i would use well i think and i'm just guessing here from what i've heard but um, I think the approaches were different, even though it, the rules are the, more or less the same. Swords and Wizardry, I think, were aim, was aiming for kind of a Rosetta Stone for old school, whereas I think Mr. Spaulding went intentionally for really OD&D flavor with this. Well, let me see if I can put a finer point on, on what I mean, because it's, it's, it's a combination of things. It's the nostalgic you know, look, feel of the actual typesetting and stuff. But Liz and I were talking uh, earlier about if if you were running Holmes D&D, which, as we know, is Liz's very favorite version of the game, and wanted to run, and run it past third level, this would be the rule set you could do that with because mm-hmm. the rules match. The, the, the flavor and the style match. Unless you have a cleric. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could jimmy that. The spells yeah, are all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just use, you know, get a copy of the original or just take some, take an XP table from any D&D you really want. No, no, fine. Find the one catastrophic flaw in my logic. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, and it's not that, uh, not that catastrophic, though, because Michael like you say, Stewart's it's... dream killer. <laughs> I, well, I, I said that to Liz, and Liz, and Liz replied on Facebook, you're right, so... <laughs> Well, shows what I know. There you go. <laughs> I shall be quiet. No, nah, not really. <laughs> anyway, so the art is, it's all public domain? Um, well, I'm not really sure. I know a lot of it appeared to be public domain type to me, but oh. I didn't look at the appendix at mm-hmm. the very end of the last book to to see everything. It has to be all public domain. And, and just like Liz said, it was thoughtfully, it was really well researched and thoughtfully placed. I mean, this wasn't just pull up Google and grab some stuff. Yeah. And um, his suggestions for further reading and internet sites, uh, I mean, no offense to Gary Gygax, but it really kind of almost leaves Appendix N in the dust in p- comprehensiveness. Well, I mean, it gives a lot of stuff. And I'm sure it helps that it was written 30 years later. And including internet, you know, I think you could safely say this is an appendix in for this generation. For 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That, that's, so, well, that's well said. Alrighty then. Are we ready to slap some dragons on this thing? I'm ready. We should have had John Peterson on the show because I would have loved his opinion of this. John, if you're listening to this podcast, write, go get this game and tell us what you think about it. Right now. We'll wait. (laughs) Come on. Any moment now. (laughs) You're not doing much. You're just, you know, being famous and roaming the planet. And going to North Texas and not talking to any of us. I talked to him. Dragons. Yes. Sorry. All righty. Um... 
Fine, I'll start off. I I still don't know how I feel about the lack of clerics. And he did import the elves having to choose whether they're going to be a magic user or a fighter every adventure. Which is certainly old school and certainly faithful to the original game. Personally, I don't like it, but I can't fault its its origin. So, I give it a four and a half. <laughs> I was really impressed. Well, I would also give it four and a half dragons. Um, I would use almost everything provided here. Uh, not quite all, which is why I'm not giving it a full five. But on the whole, there was there would be very little individual tweaking needed for me to take this and run it. Mm-hmm. It's got a it has a flavor that is very reminiscent of the Holmes rule set, um, especially with the mashup of different monsters, different genres, different everything, you know, just coexisting together. And it can it can sound gonzo sometimes, but I think it also helps to give it a well, kind of an otherworldly sort of flavor. <laughs> yeah, and kind of like the old Judges Guild Wilderlands, the setting seems to be basically a very small, ragged area of civilization in a vast wilderness or area of chaos and and evil. Yeah, and that's kind of the impression that i always got of poor town yeah Um, Yeah. it's just it's a little bit of nothing almost just out in the middle of nowhere and so the people make do the best they can and you could expect to see a lizard man walking down the street of the town you know selling stuff or you know hiring out as a sellsword maybe or things like that and you couldn't be that choosy about who you decided to serve in the tavern yeah Sounds a lot like Louisville, Kentucky, where I went to school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially the lizard men? <laughs> well, the tavern part. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with five dragons, and here's my rationale. for for. I mean, is it perfect? No. If I ran it, would I house rule something different in there? Sure. But when I look at something like this, and I can't come up with a way I would improve the product, something, that, something you know fundamental that I would change, I have to go with five. Okay. Which I think comes out to about a four point six 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 six. We should do every show so that it ends in six 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 six. And what's more old school than that? That's my point. Indeed, demon and devil references in a in in a D and D game. All right. Well, this is seven voyages of Xylarthon, and. Buy one today. Uh, we'll have the link to the Lulu site in the show notes. And like I said, the PDFs are free. And the box set is available to be purchased there. And we're headed off down our road once again. Liz, how you uh, heading down the road? I'm going down the road with the Cobalt King and his personal entourage. Counting on them to protect me from the false gnomes. Dun, dun, dun. And Jim? I'm going down the road riding a domestic thoat, popping off my radium pistols. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Well, I'm headed down the road, busy trying to 
Use my Berlitz conversational chaotic book <laughs> to prep for my next exam. And that's what we're ending at. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you episode 95. Take care, and we'll chat with you later. See ya! Bye-bye. Free arc. And we're out. The Saber Dive Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saber Dive theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.BandCamp.com. Promotional consideration for tonight's episode was brought to you by Purina Tiny Little Baby Umberhook Chow. 